0: Two readings this morning from uh, scripture. First, from the uh, first book of Samuel, and then uh, secondly, from the Gospel of Mark. The historical books in the Old Testament, uh, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, along with Ezra, Nehemiah, Ruth, and several others, um, help us to understand in a more thoroughgoing way the experience of the people of Israel as they became a true people, a cohesive unit, entity, within the land that was promised in Canaan. And in the earliest days, the 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob, Israel, um, were settled in separate geographical enclaves scattered around the land. And in that time, Um, The Ark of the Covenant, which was this beautiful box which contained the tablets on which were inscribed the Ten Commandments that God had given to Moses at Sinai following the Exodus. And then this Ark would travel month by month to the 12 tribes of Israel, each tribe in its turn, caring for and having at the center of its worship uh, the Ark of the Covenant, believing that somehow God was fully present in a way not otherwise available. And then you wonder, hmm, why do we have 12 months? Well, now you know. And this was a period that was called the period of the judges, not judges as in those who would preside over a court of law, but people who were infused with the spirit of God to undertake particular work in a time when the people found themselves in trouble for a variety of reasons. God would raise up these judges, men and women both, who would lead and help organize and direct uh, the people (laughs) of Israel to confront whatever challenge was before them. And then when the challenge, the problem was resolved, the judges would go back to their daily life. They didn't take on the mantle of authority on going. By the time of Samuel, the great prophet, the people were growing restive. They wanted a king to rule over them, like the other peoples. And they keep going to Samuel, who they understand to be an individual who's in a deep and somehow transformative communication with God and say, we want a king like the other peoples, our neighbors, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Jebusites. We want a king. And so in the second, in the first book of Samuel, we find this narrative. The elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, Samuel, you are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. You have appointed them, but they have not followed in the ways that you taught them. So we ask you to appoint for us a king to govern us like the other nations. But this request displeased Samuel, especially when they said, give us a king to govern us. From the advantage point of Samuel, they had a sovereign. They had God, Yahweh, the one who had given them the commandments, who guided and directed them um, with those commandments to a decent and compassionate, honorable, humane life and society, and the judges who would rise up be raised up by God to lead the people as time and circumstances required. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. They are rejecting me from being sovereign over them, just as they have done to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are now doing to you. So listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them to show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. So then Samuel recounts for the people Well, you know, if you have a king, this king is going to tax you. He's going to draft your sons into the army. He's going to restrict your movements and impose laws upon you. He's going to require your daughters to present service to the king and to create perfume and give them to the court. All these things they'll have to give over um, to the king. In verse 19, "...but the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel." They said, no, no, we are determined to have a king over us so that we also may be like the other nations that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And then the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice set a king over them. And then Samuel said to the people of Israel, each of you now return to your home. And so the story would go on from there. And in fact, Samuel will select Saul to be the first king of Israel. And everything that Samuel had foreseen and predicted came to pass, and there was great trouble in the land of Israel under Saul's reign. This idea about holding a people together through a shared identity, their allegiance to God, it's very hard to do. Uh, You may have um, been on North Benson Road and driven by the Trinity Baptist Church, and on the sign out front, uh, they have a line that says, pursuing a God-centered life. It's a great phrase. It's a wonderful goal. It's a wonderful mantra um, to orient and to shape our living. Pursuing a God-centered life. That's what Samuel and the people are arguing about. And the people want to go with the ways of the world, quote-unquote, and have a king. And Samuel's response is, but we have a sovereign. We have one who's already with us and for us and has shown us how to live. If we live in response to that, if we keep God at our center, then we will not need an earthly sovereign, a monarch, to rule over us. And yet the people persist, and so human history unfolds from there. This is a central idea in the Bible That we hold God at the center of our lives, and when we do so, our lives take on an order that they could not have in and of themselves. My grandmother had a wonderful um, cross stitch over her sink, which read, When my day is hemmed in prayer, it is less likely to unravel. When my day is hemmed in prayer, it is less likely to unravel. That God sent it to begin the day being reminded of how God is fully, completely with us in every every circumstance of our life, reaching out to us in love. And the invitation, not coerced by God into a relationship, but the invitation from God to live in that conscious understanding of ourselves as the objects of God's desire. You are the object of God's desire for a living, loving relationship. Living in the knowledge that you are the object of God's desire is to be saved saved from the fear and and the self-loathing and the anxiety and the sense of desperation which fills so much of our days and hearts and overflows in our consciousness, perverting our path through life to enter into a fully trusting relationship knowing that you are the object of God's desire. So from the Gospel of Mark, in the fourth chapter. Jesus said, The kingdom of God, this is one of Matthew's uh, Mark's favorite expressions, the kingdom of God, the reign of God. In Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. Um, in in John's Gospel, the phrase is eternal life. All of them point to this idea of living fully in the presence of God, having that God consciousness, as it were, in our daily living. He said, the kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed upon the ground and would sleep and then rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow, and the farmer does not know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. And when the grain is ripe, at once the farmer goes out with the sickle, because the harvest has come. Jesus also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or well, What parable shall we use for it? A parable is a story, a metaphor, that suggests God. It's not an analogy, It's not a description. It's an evocative story that calls us to bring our own interpretive juices to the exchange so we may understand God more fully. He taught them in a parable. What parable shall we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest seed of all the seeds of the earth. And yet When it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade from this teeny tiny seed that grows of its own accord in the fertile soil, a home where the birds may make their nest. And then... With many such parables Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables and then explained everything to his disciples when they were in private. So he would sit back after he had been spent the day teaching and hanging out with people. And he would interpret for them, explain to them, these parables. So scattering the seed, letting it go, throwing it into the dirt, and letting nature take its course. So God is found not only at the center of our lives, God is also found at the margins of our lives. In fact, it's quite often our encounter with God at the margins of our life, at the outer realms of our experience, in the places of our deepest need, our greatest sadness, our grief over the death of someone so dear to us that life itself seems not worthy of following in their demise, or our grief at the wrong that we have done the evil that we have perpetrated against another, the sorrow, the contrition uh, that we feel. The sense of loneliness that besets so many of us, feeling that life has let us down. People have let us down. Those we trusted have proven to be untrustworthy, feeling bereft, forgotten, alone. In these places of our marginal existence, God is not absent. Indeed, it's in moments such as this that God is very and perhaps most fully present to us. If we will but turn, turn over, open our hearts, ask for forgiveness, for strength for comfort, companionship, for love, for love, and perhaps come to know, feel that great presence of God even more fully, which would then draw us into a place where God resides at the center of our lives. seems to me this is what is happening uh, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, As Heidi pointed out so beautifully in her children's sermon, it is in the common day stuff of life. It's in bread and juice, wine and wafer, in mac and cheese that God comes to be with us. Not in some kind of ethereal realm, but in the prosaic details of our daily living, which become profound, because they bear God to us. And so in a sense, the margin and the center are not distinct realities or locations at all, but are, in fact, the one true reality upon which our lives are built with God there is no margin. The marginalized experience of our lives is the product of human circumstance and human failure. But the centeredness of God that is in every place and all times and with and for all people, that is to say for you, becomes the foundation upon which our lives might be built, our hearts might be comforted, our lives rebuilt and redirected, our days find their truest meaning, our souls find their true rest. In Jesus, God has chosen to live in all the places that God could live in the cosmos, God has chosen to live in humble human hearts. Not just the heart of the carpenter of Nazareth, but all of life, all creation. Every critter and creature is transformed by the incarnation of Jesus, the embodiment of God's love in this itinerant preacher and in you. And in every element, person, critter and creature of God, where God has chosen to live, the center and the margin, all rolled into one. Amen.